during the Puritan and colonial era, it was customary to preach an election day sermon, and this was done throughout the colonies, and it was done for the express purpose of educating Christ's church and the populace in general as to their duty in that election cycle in order to preserve their God-given liberties. So as we approach the celebration of America's independence, we must look again to what God says about the civil ruler. A roll coming reading coming from Exodus in chapter 18, Exodus in chapter 18, beginning in verse 13, beginning in verse 13, the paragraph beginning through the end of the chapter, verse 27. By inspiration of God, when Jethro is telling now Moses the division of responsibility, we read here Exodus 18, 13 through 27, Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening. And when Moses, his father-in-law, saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone, and all the people stand by thee from morning unto even? And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another, and I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee, for this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shall show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work, and the work that they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them, to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons. And it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. If thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. So... Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they judged the people at all seasons. The hard causes they brought unto Moses. For every small matter they judged themselves. And Moses led his father-in-law depart. And he went his way into his own land. Paul, speaking of government, Romans in chapter 13, the first five verses. By the same Spirit, Paul says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whoso therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnations. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. 
for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower of the arrow fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by that word is the gospel presented unto us again this day, and all of the statutes and ordinances that make for a righteous government. Now for centuries, the faithful church has admonished the people of God at all seasons, but especially during times of liberty celebrations and elections. So for centuries, the faithful church has admonished the people of God, along with the general public, to only elect rulers who are biblically qualified for the task of governing. The reason for this was so that honest men might protect the nation's current atmosphere of liberty and perhaps, more importantly, secure a legacy for the generations to come, for many generations. And those seeking to serve the people in an official public capacity had to be properly vetted by the people so that when the people voted for these people, they would be voting in honest people, people that weren't corrupt. However, if the people vetted those men according to a false or evil set of standards, liberty would be in peril of being lost. So the church was the primary influencer in telling the people, here are the standards by which men should be vetted for public service. But if the church remained silent, or if the church was perverted in any way, then they would be assured of bringing into the place of rulership men of questionable character. Now today's voters, today's people, are using a selfish, for the most part, covetous, even a licentious standard when they vote for their leaders. They ask questions like, how, how much are they going to give me? How much can the government give me? Or maybe my agenda is really what kind of government I want. So I'm going to vote according to my personal agenda. And so whenever a people fail to choose their civil rulers according to biblical standards, they jeopardize the entire population. They jeopardize an entire nation. Not only do they jeopardize the nation and the people within that nation by allowing men to execute tyrannical and unjust laws, but they beg, they actually are begging for the wrath of God to come upon them for their rebellion. Now, if liberty is to be secured and the nation blessed, those that seek public office must profess at least an overtly Christian ideal. And they must possess, as Christians, the following character traits and the following abilities. Number one, they must be able men according to God's prescription. Exodus 18, verse 21. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, men with ability, and it is men with ability. Today we find, for the most part, many women running to the place of power. Whether there be righteous women or unrighteous women. I'm quite impressed with some of the women who are righteous. Who are 
seeking public office. But I know something about that providential orchestration. It's when men fail in their duties, women rise up like they did in the days of the judges when men failed in their duty and Deborah had to rise up. So these individuals must be able men. These leaders must be men of physical, moral, and spiritual strength. Physical, mental, spiritual, moral strength. They must be resolute. They must be men of rigor, valor, virtue, tenacity, and courage. You can't have an elderly individual and expect that individual to have that stamina that leadership does require. The Reverend William Enwechter comments, he says, A man who is a coward, a man who is a coward, will not fulfill his duty to uphold God's law if doing so would be unpopular with the people. So here we have now rulers seeking a popularity contest to be more popular. What can I give you? What can you have from us? I can give you this, I can give you that. Vote for me, make me popular. He continues, The demands of being a magistrate requires men who have the skills, that is the abilities, necessary to lead others. But most of these men can't even lead themselves. What we have today is a nation of child leadership. Second point, they must be men that fear God. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, reverence God, a reverence to God, a fear of God. That would keep them in, in tow, knowing that there is an eternal consequence to their temporal actions. Because the fear of God is the beginning of understanding, it's the beginning of wisdom. A man that does not fear God, if he does not fear the Lord, he cannot possibly possess these attributes which are entirely necessary for leadership. And Moses confirms this in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 13. Notice what he says. Take you wise men and understanding, so we need wisdom and understanding, both come from the fear of God, the honor of God. Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes for their character abilities, for their consistency throughout the years that you've known them, and I will make them rulers over you. Men who rule must be of the highest caliber of personal integrity. Number three, they must be men committed to truth, the truth of God's revelation. Notice again, verse 21, Exodus 18, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, Men of truth. These are truthful men. Honest men. This means that those who rule must be honest men of piety. If one is of the truth, he will seek to follow the truth in every area of life, personally and professionally. John Calvin, during his days in Geneva, he understood that. And this is what he wrote. No government can be happily established unless piety is the first concern. Holy kings are greatly praised in Scripture because they resorted to the worship of God, when it was corrupted or destroyed, they sought to repair it. They took great care of religion, that under them it might flourish, this worship of God, the true, pure worship of God, not only in the, on the Lord's Day, but throughout the individual's life. They took care of religion, that under them it might flourish, pure and unblemished. So the magistrates here were to be men 
who would then help the church to flourish, that it would remain holy and just and righteous. So a ruler that loves the truth will defend the truth by acting justly. They must know right from wrong, good from evil, what is just as opposed to what is unjust. We have the exact opposite today. The exact opposite. Diametrically opposed. The laws that are being made today and promoted today are diametrically opposed to everything that is good, everything that is pure, everything that is holy, and everything that is righteous. And what is the church doing? They're setting up fireworks on the 4th of July. They're having Easter egg hunts during the resurrection holiday. They're having Pentecost sermons during the day of Pentecost. Turning a blind eye to the reality. And yet, if all the churches band together, you would see such a groundswell. But that's not what we see. If a ruler that does not love the truth is placed in power, he will always, and I underline always, eventually he will always act tyrannically and only in his best interest at the expense of all those that get in his or her way. At the expense. Even if it means killing them. As it has been done in certain third world nations. Jeremiah, by the Spirit, declares this. Notice what he says. Jeremiah 22, 1 and following. Thus saith Yahweh, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word. Here's the commandment from the prophet. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Who? You can't do it now. Unless you want to get arrested right away. Unless you can get to the, the White House, past the uh, chain link fence with the razor wires or the congressional halls of Congress, can't do this now, go to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, that sitteth upon the throne of David, thou and thy servants and thy people that enter in by these gates. Thus saith Yahweh, execute ye judgment and righteousness and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor and do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. Isn't that a message we need to bring today? But we can't even go to the city fathers and call them out. Civil rulers who do not love the truth will be tempted to lie and perpetuate falsehoods as it suits them. Liars and lovers of falsehoods are a scourge to the nation over which they preside. And when they hold office, it signals two things. Number one, the people have apostatized as a result of the church's failings in her duty to educate and warn the people. And two, God is bringing judgment. This is judgment. We are in the midst of judgment. And it's only getting worse. And what is the church doing? They're proclaiming that it must be the end of the world when Jesus is about to come. So they hunker down and wait for the Lord Jesus to take them out of the mess. When the fact of the matter is the Lord Jesus is here in his body on earth in time and in history. Number four, those that rule must also be men of honor by hating covetousness, which includes covetousness of money, covetousness of power, covetousness of position, and covetousness of praise. 
I just want to vomit out of my nose when the President of the United States walks out into the podium like, like a robot. Because of the man that he is, a disgrace to our forefathers and a disgrace to those of the Puritan era and the era of the Reformation. But he loves the praises of men. Goes to Europe. Sits there with the G4, the G5, the G6, the G7. And he just loves that. So did every one of the other that has ever ascended to that throne. But is he dedicated to the service of his people? No. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people of men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, the covetousness of money, power, position, or praise. Again, the Reverend N. Weichter comments, he says, a man who is raised to the position of civil magistrate must be one who seeks no unjust gain from his position. You can't be taking money from all of these places to just feather your nest. No. You have to hate covetousness. No unjust gain. He continues, he must hate not simply dislike, but hate. Those are the reverend's words. The thought, notice, not only hating covetousness, the thought of using his office to enrich himself through violence, fraud, bribes, etc. He's got to even hate thinking about it. He continues, a covetous magistrate must also hate covetousness in others. And not allow any citizen to use the power of civil government to seize the wealth of his neighbor through unjust legislation or confiscatory taxation. Can confiscate things, aka the IRS, along with these qualifications. Those that rule must have a working knowledge of both the duties as well as the limitations of government. And yet with all of this knowledge, invariably, over and over, it seems as if this nation, which was originally born out of Western civilization's Christendom, is constantly, consistently faced with less than desirable choices, and in many cases forced to choose between the lesser of two evils. When we see a man who's pretty good, we're like, wow, what, a, what a, an anomaly that is. Many of whom are biblically disqualified from holding public office. And once again, whenever this scenario manifests itself, one thing is certain, God is judging the nation and especially the church for her apostasy. The Reverend Joseph Moorcraft rightly observes, he says, when God begins to judge a nation for its revolt against him, he removes effective leaders and replaces them with irresponsible and reckless ones who have no appreciation of the past and no commitment to the future under God. Isaiah confirms this observation in Isaiah 3, one through five. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, to take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient, the captain of fifty and the honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator. And I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them and the people shall be oppressed every one by another and every one by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient and the base against the honorable. This could have been written yesterday. In America's history, it was customary for the ministers of the gospel 
the pulpits to exhort their congregation as to biblical political decisions in any and every upcoming election. It was their task, it was the pulpit's task to say, now you brethren, you have man here and man over there, A and B, this man is good, this man has these qualities, but this man, no way, no how. And then you look at the man that was pretty good, say, look, he's got these problems because we're not going to get a perfect man, you're not going to get Jesus Christ. But here's what we have. The ministers of God were called to ensure that the standard of God was honored, at least for the most part, and upheld for those seeking public office. So the ministers of the gospel and all the people of God were actively involved in the political arena. That's why during these celebrations, election day celebrations, sermons for election day, or liberation celebrations, election day sermons and political writings were the backbone, the backbone of Puritan and colonial life. Between the years of 1760 and 1805, hundreds and hundreds of election day sermons were given in the churches of colonial America. Now, if you live in Virginia, that's where we live, you have an election cycle every single year. I believe it's the only state in the Union that has an election somewhere, somehow, in, in our state, in our commonwealth, every year. So every year is an election cycle. Now, these political writings, these political election day sermons, during the 17 and 1800s, were complemented by tracts. They were complemented by writings, by ministers, by godly men, writing these pamphlets, written by notable men of position, clergymen and such, in addition to other writings that were too scathing to, to have their names attached to them. So there would be anonymous tracts placed here and there, because they didn't want to get any repercussions. But this was a bold move. Could you imagine if we, and we have an election coming up locally, blanketed the county with a tract against so-and-so and for so-and-so. This was common among the people during those days. They were actively involved. They knew what was at stake. And so we find such titles in some of these pamphlets and tracts as the importance of public virtue for a self-governing people and their importance of religion for public virtue by Anonymous. These political writings were penned by men like the Reverend Abraham Williams, Governor Stephen Hopkins, Statesman Richard Bland, Congressional Minister Daniel Shute, Reverend Nathaniel Emmons, Reverend Jeremiah Atwater, and a host of others. Men, we, we don't even know these men. We don't even know their names. And yet they were active. Here we have the unsung heroes of liberty. The Reverend Williams was regarded by some, even some among certain ministers, as he was called the Grand Heretic Williams for his explosive lectures where he writes, notice what he says, Government comes from God and His ordinance. The kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations. The meaning is that God is the supreme governor and disposer of all things. His all-wise providence superintends all events, particularly those relating to mankind. And government is a divine constitution which must be agreeable to God. 
the end and design of civil society and government must be to secure the rights and properties of its members and to promote their welfare or in the apostles' words that men may lead a quiet and peaceful life in godliness and honesty. In all governments, he continues, magistrates are God's ministers designed for good to the people. The end of their institution is to be instruments of divine providence. Notice, instruments of divine providence to secure and promote the happiness of society and to be terrorists to the doers of evil, to prevent and punish unrighteousness and remedy the evils occasioned thereby and to be a praise, a security and a reward to them that do well. The end and design of government is to secure men from all injustice, violence and rapine that they may enjoy their rights and properties with all the advantages of society along with the peaceable practice of godliness. That the unjust may be restrained, the ill effects of their wickedness be prevented, the secular welfare of all be secured and promoted. End quote. Now you read that to someone today, they don't want to even understand what's being said. They can't even wrap their minds around this because they're so stupidly dumbed down by the education system. Now, it was commonly understood that without God and his law structuring society through the leadership of godly magistrates, society would go into a graveyard spiral downward under the judgment of God, resulting in the unrestraint of man's most horrible sinfulness. We are there we are there, but we're not totally there yet. Can you imagine how it is going to be ten years from now if things aren't stopped? If the church doesn't wake up? It was the minister's task to warn the people of their duty in choosing only righteous men of integrity who feared God and who trembled at His word. Now over time, with the adoption of so many heresies, the dualistic theology, pietism and such, where it was taught that the political realm was to be left alone by the church, these sermons and writings lost their appeal from both ministers and congressional members alike. They would say things like, oh, politics, oh, oh we're too holy. Politics is such a dirty business. We should refrain from getting involved. You know, until they come knocking on your door and they close down your church and then you think about that. Now, as a result of this gross neglect of godly duty and the increasing apostasy of the church, these sermons are no longer entertained by the modern church. Liberty and the future of many generations are now left up to the wicked without input of the church. In fact, some churches discussing politics is not only frowned upon, but sometimes it's even outlawed. Oh no, we don't talk about that here. Sorry. You vote the way you want. So, you want to vote Democrat? You want to vote for the murder of the unborn? You want to vote for the murder of the born? You want to vote for the uh, euthanasia for anyone seeking um, to kill the uh, grandma and throw her off the bridge? Go right ahead. It's okay. We don't want anything to do with that. How disgusting. How disgusting to stand in God's pulpit and just even allow such nonsense. Excommunicate, excommunicate, excommunicate. You see a, a a flood of people leaving the church because they're thrown out for their apostasy. But churches need the money because they got that mortgage. They got that swimming pool. They got that gymnasium. They got the hundred thousand dollar man for the pastor who works forty minutes a week on Sunday after writing an anecdotal sermon for twenty minutes. While a pulpit exhortation to elect godly men is still found in some far-reaching corners of America. 
Among some of the existing faithful ministers and churches, their voice is seldom heard. Now, the overarching question, I believe, which needs to be asked is very simple, very elemental. First of all, we have to ask these questions. Is the Bible God's word? Is, is there a God in the universe? And is his word true? Is it inspired? Is it the final authority on every matter, personally and institutionally? Is it the standard of all life, all faith? And the answer has to be yes. And if these things are true, then it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be rocket science to realize that we need to obey these things that are written in the scriptures, especially when it comes to detailing government structure, the laws of society, jurisprudence and such. The scriptures are to be mankind's rule exclusively for faith and life, especially when it comes to the structure of the nations. And nations are structured by governing structures, by a government. This is why Jesus is called the king, because a king presupposes there's a governing structure under the king. So let's consider still another question. Why has there been such a dramatic departure from Scripture when it comes to government and the choosing of those seeking to be governors of the people? Now, the Scripture cannot be clear in 2 Samuel 23.3. He that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. Now, this obviously is a political statement which concerns itself with the choosing of rulers from the least even to the greatest. R.J. Rushton, he comments on exactly what justice means. Notice what he says. Justice means God's law. This was understood by Christians through the centuries and it was the basis of their political action. Notice, the law of God was the basis of political action. The efforts of the church in the West, especially to influence or to command the state, had as their purpose the rule of God's law in the state. The rule of God's law in the state. Now, there are two fundamental situations, or let me put it this way, there are two fundamental sins which have undermined the church and her commission as counselors and prophets in the arena of politics and government. Now, what is so sad is that these sinful doctrines and practices have not found their genesis or their encouragement from the world at large, from the secular realm. But rather, the genesis of these wicked situations, sins, and thinkings have found their, their beginning point, their originating point, for the most part, within the community of the church itself. In other words, the church is promoting these things. Now, I could understand and even accept when the world outside says, we're going to promote all of these things that fundamentally result in wickedness. But when the church promotes the things which result in wickedness, that, that I cannot countenance. The first reason why there has been a departure from Scripture, and I put it at the anti-Christian secular education structure. The acceptance and the adoption of state-run schooling by professional secularists and by Professing Christians have indoctrinated the last several generations into this idea that the state is God. It's not the secular, it's the Christian who has promoted and adopted. Yes, let's give our children to the secular instructors. Where religion has no place 
in the world. Not in the political world, not in the legal world. Now, to give a covenant child, or any child for that matter, to the state for the molding of their character by secularized indoctrination cloaked in the language of education is patently wrong. It's a sin. Now, we may not have known that. My mother and father didn't know that. Your mother and father might not have known that. But we know it now. We know it now. In spades, we know it now. And yet, even if I could give everyone a pass who didn't know, out of ignorance, and yet, the Lord says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Even if we can give everyone a pass, where's the exodus? Where's the exodus that your, your little boy is told she, he's not Johnny, but Sally, or Susie? Where Susie is now Billy. And it doesn't really matter. And where there's this encouragement to pervert even the image of God. It wasn't enough to kill the image of God in the pre-born. Now we want to pervert the image of God after it's born. Did you ever think you'd see that day? But we're seeing that day now. Once a population is educated by an establishment which is anti-God, anti-creation, anti-moral, anti-everything that God has established as right and good, the results will eventually be seen in the culture and that's what we're seeing. The chickens are coming home, my friends. They're coming home to roost. Once the youth is indoctrinated in this fashion, the culture becomes a culture of chaos and death. And it is a culture of chaos and death. Make no mistake about it. What we are seeing now is not only destroying the minds of the youth, it's actually destroying their bodies as well. The second sin. The doctrine of pietism, dispensationalism, the two-kingdom dualistic mentality and Zionism together have destroyed the power of the church from protecting the culture from reprobate man's secular assault and domination. These doctrines finally repeal in men's desire to be irresponsible. It's easy for a man to say, you know what, I don't need to fight City Hall because Jesus is coming. I don't need to be responsible because Jesus is coming. It's not my problem. It's Jesus' problem. I'm going to just wait for Jesus. Or I'm going to let the minister do it. I've got things to do. You know, I've got to work. I've got to pay, pay for my bills, my family, this, that, the other thing. It's a, the cult of irresponsibility. That's what we're dealing with. So, let's manufacture doctrines that keep us happily irresponsible. Well, thinking we're so holy. Because wicked man desires nothing more than to be removed from any responsibility that may be uncomfortable or challenging. I don't want to be challenged. I don't, I don't want to be uncomfortable. So they invent doctrines and they hire ministers that will perpetuate those doctrines which ensure the culture's not really important, ensuring the church's neutrality, making her a slave to the state. And so while they wait for the rapture, the world crumbles around them, and their entire generational legacy evaporates under the tyranny of the state and the impotence of the church. Another question, however, another few questions, perhaps weightier than them all, is what is to be done? It's not really so much what is to be done. And we always ask that question, what, what should we do? That's not the question I want to ask today. The question I'd like to ask today is this. What shall be done now? Today, tomorrow, Monday morning. What's the plan? 
which, if faithfully executed, can and will bring this nation to its proper place of biblical leadership, should God bless the efforts of his people. And I believe once God's people are obedient, God always blesses those efforts. The answers are right before us. Second Samuel 23.3 He that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. So the question is, who are the just men? What makes a man holy? What makes a man just? What makes a man good? Well, firstly, these are Christian men in word and deed, professing Christians. They have to say, yes, I'm a Christian man, and they have to prove it. They have to show by their life. Men who are not afraid to own their faith, consistent in doctrine, consistent in conduct. Secondly, they are men with a Christ-centered world and life view. Could you imagine a church voting for a political leader that has openly encouraged infanticide? I, I just don't, I just can't get my head wrapped around it. I just can't do it. Or a church leader who openly, openly supports a Marxist, socialist, tyrannical ideology such as the BLM. I can't wrap my head around it. Or to say that, that racism is something that's really systemic. I just can't wrap my head around it. And you know, just recently there was a, there was a, a talk show host that said he was on the street interviewing people in New York City. Anyway, what do you think about New York City? Uh, of course you're going to find these knuckleheads, but that's okay. So we asked this one woman, are you going, what are you going to do the 4th of July? Are you going to celebrate? How are you going to celebrate? And she said, well, I'm not celebrating the 4th of July. I'm celebrating June, Juneteenth. Well, how in the world are you going to celebrate Juneteenth without recognizing that the only reason why you had Juneteenth is because of July 4th? You've got a culture of stupid. You have a culture of ignoramuses that don't even know the history. And why? Because the church never, never even encouraged history. And the schools, they're not teaching the true history. They're teaching whatever they want to teach in order to destroy the culture. The third point. Men who are just and holy believe in confrontation. Now, I don't like confrontation. And yet, I'm called to confront. So I'll put my game face on and I'll confront the wicked. And I'll do everything that I can as long as God gives me breath to do so. And that's how we should be thinking. Those who are holy, just, and good are not afraid of confrontation. They believe in confronting the culture with biblical truth and they're not escapists. They're not pragmatists. They understand the situations. And as hard and complex as they may seem, they're not afraid to find real answer from Scripture even if, even if they, they, they might make a mistake. You know, I remember that movie that classic movie One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest and if you haven't seen it you should see it it's not very holy it's gritty we're men we're not babies we're not pietists but there was that one scene where the star tries to rip the the sink off the wall to throw it through the wall in order to escape and he couldn't do it he tried he tried he tried he couldn't do it and they started laughing at him. And he said, at least I tried. But then later on, after they killed him, the powers that be killed him, one of the other men, big man, rips that sink off the wall, throws it through the wall, and he escapes. 
But at least that man gave the example. At least he tried. At least he tried to do something to make a footprint, a footprint for righteousness in the world. You need to ask yourself a question, you men especially. What eternal footprint are you leaving in this world? Yes, your children, but what are you leaving in this world? They have their homes in order. They understand Christ's plan. They are husbands and fathers of integrity. They are mothers and aunts and uncles and sisters and brothers who help in the cause. Men of integrity, not selfish, not prideful, not contentious. They know how to conduct themselves graciously with others, even when there's contention. They have to be cunning. Cunning is important too. Always one step ahead of the seculars. Not always telegraphing their real intentions. Why the serpents? Note Jethro's plan of action. The first thing that Jethro advises is whomsoever rules, he must be for the people Godward. For the people, not for himself. In other words, he must have the people's best interest in mind, which can only be accomplished by honoring God and His law word. Be thou for the people Godward. And to have the people's interest in view means that your desire for God is to bless the people and the only way for you to have God bless the people is if you structure that culture according to God's precepts. Jethro is telling Moses that God abides by his covenant stipulations of of causistry. In other words, obey and be blessed, rebel and cursed. Obey and be blessed. If you rebel, you are cursed. So his recommendations of Exodus 18 is God's commandment to the church in every nation which exists on the face of the planet. You see, God had promised Israel, which is also a covenant promise to us in the New Testament, that if we obey God, He will make us a great and prosperous nation. It's not hard. It's not rocket science to understand it. We would then be the envy of all of the nations if we only would adopt God's divine principles of government law and jurisprudence. This means choosing righteousness, choosing God-fearing men to the various civil offices of society. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, in the months before Lee's surrender at Appomattox in 1863, the Reverend Joseph Stye, a Georgia soldier of the 53rd Regiment of the Confederate Army, in an appeal to the Confederate States, he wrote a treatise called National Rectitude, the only true basis of national prosperity. And this is what he wrote. In arranging the evidence of our grand national duty, it becomes us to remember that God is the one great witness of earth. National rectitude therefore demands national consecration to the which his kingdom is established by the word of God. Man has but two possible objects of supreme pursuit. God or the world. The very first work of life is to choose between them. The very first work of life is to choose between God or the world. Now, before we consider in closing some of the strategies for the Reformation and Reconstruction of America, there's one other aspect to consider concerning wicked rulers. Wicked rulers are illegitimate. They're not legitimate. Oh, yes, God's put them there, but they are illegitimate. Providentially, they are ordained by God for the chastisement and judgment of nations, but they are nevertheless illegitimate. Rush Dooney comments, he says, Again and again, the problem of legitimacy confronts man. 
The taint of illegitimacy is more than a legal question or a personal question as in being an illegitimate child. It has reference to the basic order of life which has been violated. Much of the time, men do not question the legitimacy of their social order nor of their political leaders. That's what has to change, mind you. We need to question the illegitimacy or the legitimacy of our political leaders or our cultural structure. He continues, they simply live with them for better or for worse. However, when the religious foundations of a society begin to crack, then all kinds of questions arise and their basic thrust is to challenge the, le the legitimacy of the order. And that's what was happening with the election. They were challenging the legitimacy and what was happening? Whoa, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about whether it's legitimate or not. It is what it is. Now, suck it up. Verse 2 continues. Legitimacy is a religious concept. The legitimate order, whether it be a church, state, family, school, industry, or anything else, must have its roots in the basic beliefs of society. No illegitimate ruler can possibly be a good or wise ruler, since the man who rules illegitimately rules in violation of the basic presuppositions of the society. End quote. Now, according to the Holy Scriptures, the basic presupposition of a legitimate social order are those found in the law of God. And the qualifications for those that rule are those found in God's law as well. These alone are what legitimizes any and all societies and any and all rules. So if you see a culture or a ruler that is going away from and against how God has structured the world, he is illegitimate by definition. Likewise, pastors and churches. When they depart from the doctrines of Christ, they become illegitimate. How many churches and pastors do you know now are illegitimate according to this definition? Professor Kevin Clausen comments, he says, God's people and godless societies both have been perpetually confronted with the issue of authority. More specifically, the question becomes, by what standard will the civil laws of a nation be crafted? What will be the source of public law? There must be a standard for civil law. Where's the standard come from? That's absolute. God's law. He says this. Romans 13.4 claims that civil rulers are the ministers of God. If they are ministers or servants of the Lord, then they are obligated to follow their master's commandments. Alright, so where do we begin? What's the plan for America's return to God? Well, let's find out who are qualified to rule, both in the pulpit and in the society. These must be professing Christian men who have a distinctly Christocentric world and life view and who hold the Bible as the final authority and faith in life. They must believe in engagement, not escapism. In other words, their eschatological presuppositions must not be one of defeatism. They must have a working knowledge of God's law and the history of the world from a Christocentric vantage point. They must know where they've come from, otherwise they will not go where, know where they're going. This means that pulpits must be able to teach God's law and the aspects of history that are relevant to politics and the social order. Secondly, the church must get men involved in civil action from both the pulpit and by creating specialized training facilities for those that would be biblical statesmen. We teach God's law. We teach how it's applied locally, statewide, nationally. We support men 
like our congressmen in the 5th District who are, are sold out for the gospel. Not afraid of, of engaging the wicked. We teach individuals how to take a biblical position on a wide range of social issues. We teach history and the application of that history from a providential point of view by teaching those men how to apply Scripture to the world around them. We train them to avoid the pitfalls of the media and what Reverend Gary Huffman calls the hype of sensational exaggeration both on the liberal side and on the conservative. We train others who are not able men to go into political office as watchmen, legislative executives, helpers, think tanks, judicial and media watchmen who can sift through the noise and warn the people when issues arise that threaten civility, freedom, and God's social order. We train others to, to write political papers, policy papers, tactical playbooks, so that others can be groomed to think biblically. Where do we start? Where do we start that? Well, don't expect me to do it all. Don't expect your pastor to do it. You start. Start at your home, in your home, with your family. Then move out to your community. Define your goals and intentions. Be specific as to your end goal. You just can't be abstract. I want to do A. I want to target this illegitimate ruler and I want to pray in precatory prayers every day against him and then pray that I can find someone that's willing to run in his place. That's a specific thing. Very specific. What do you want to achieve? We can't do everything. We can do one thing. So let's find that one thing. Unite with others who are like-minded. Do not waste your time on gainsayers and distractors. Build a coalition, even if it's small. Analyze all problems in light of Scripture. Confront each problem biblically without apology. When criticizing, be sure you do so constructively. You must come up with real solutions to real problems. Curing the present system without giving a solution is futile. You can't just curse the darkness. You've got to come up with a, a, a plan. You've got to study scripture because it's all there. Now these are only a few of the many considerations and tactics for Christian reconstruction. But that's where we need to start. We need to be creative and if we're not creative we pray about being creative because God can make us creative. He can give us the ideas. We just have to just make sure that we generate them with prayer and with patience and with courage and with tenacity. Everything will take time. But we must start somewhere. We may not be able to find the perfect candidate, but we have to start somewhere and we have to start with someone. And God be pleased to raise up a generation of judges, because that's what we need to confront the apostasy of our day in both the church and the nation. I encourage you to start praying for godly men to fill the pulpits of America. Without compromise, we need to have a new reformation and enlightenment and bring people who don't have churches, who think like we do, to have a shepherd. May God be pleased to raise up such men who are able men, those who fear God and are willing to sacrifice themselves for His glory. This we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.